Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of conversations about law practice. Each week, we talk with legal entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 218 of the Lawyerist podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with our friend Ed Walters about data-driven law practice. Today's podcast is brought to you by Text Expander, Arag, Ruby Receptionists, and Podium. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support. Stay tuned. We'll tell you more about them later on. So last week, we excitedly announced the launch of our 10th annual Best Law Firm Websites contest Woo-hoo. and post, which live <laughs> on the front page of Lawyerist. Go check it out. And in our discussion in the podcast last week, we mentioned some tips around using that tool as an opportunity to take it to your website designer and give them input on some of the best practices we're encouraging law firms to use. And maybe your designer can help you improve your law firm website according to some of the tips and tricks and best practices that are coming out of this contest. But it occurs to us, what happens if you don't have a website designer to take that to? We don't want that to be unuseful for you. And so wanted to let you know of a few resources we have on Lawyerist to help you find the right website designer for you. Yeah. After many, many years of people asking us who they should hire, we started actually making referrals. And uh, if you go to the Best Law Firm websites page, You'll find it on that page. It's on our front page. You can find a website designer by filling out a short assessment that helps us understand what your needs are and what your budget is and things like that so that we can make a customized recommendation for you. And we also have, I'm teeing you up, Aaron, (laughs) or you could just say and. very smooth segue <laughs> that we're now talking about. Yeah, if, if you, for some reason you don't want to fill out that form or if you're just not in the process of actually looking for one and you're curious and want to dig around, we also have our law firm website and SEO service provider vendor portal where we do some side-by-side comparisons of almost all of the players in the market. And so if you're just curious about browsing around what kinds of designers are out there and what their skills are, you can find that on our website designers portal, which is also linked from the post. And (laughs) for members of our lab and insider plus programs, you might be entitled to affinity benefits, which would get you a discount for some of those designers. So make sure you're logged into lawyerist. If you're a member of lab or insider plus, and you should see those notifications pop up right next to the name of the designer on their pages. And if you're not already a member, maybe you should join. This is a good chance to get a discount and, cover the cost of your Insider Plus membership. So now we've got a brief sponsored conversation with Joseph Jenkins from Podium and then my conversation with Ed. Hi, I'm Joseph Jenkins from Podium. We make it simple for lawyers to conveniently connect with clients, drive new business, and quickly build their online reputation through reviews and texting. Our work of streamlining this process for local businesses has awarded us some of the top recognition in the industry, such as Forbes Next Billion Dollar Startups, Forbes Cloud 100, and the Inc. 5000. Uh, we're the 13th fastest growing company in the U.S. Hey, Joe, thanks for being with us again. Today, you want to talk about how people find lawyers. How do they? Yeah, the discovery process for prospective clients has changed a lot in the last 10 years. And throughout this conversation, think about your own experience. For our listeners, think about how you search for businesses and and think generally. In any case, when we're looking for a business to work with, it starts online. A search term might be best lawyers near me, 
cost of hiring a divorce attorney, things of that nature. And we tend to think through multiple channels of research as well. We'll certainly ask our friends for referrals, maybe a friend who got hurt at work. But to layer on top of that research, we tend to look online as well. Hmm. And in that process, 84% of consumers nowadays trust online reviews as much as they trust a recommendation from family or friends. And it's interesting because you think about, again, your own research. You've probably had a friend recommend to you a restaurant before, and, and it wasn't as good as you hoped it would have been. Mm-hmm. Fair to say? Yeah. And the same thing goes with, with major business decisions or major life decisions. Again, a personal injury case is a big deal. I want to make the right choice. You bet I'm researching every review of every lawyer in my area, good or bad. And so the intent is to make sure that when consumers are researching you don't lose the business you've paid to get through advertising, through your hard work, through referrals, or just through organic searchers online as well. That makes good sense. Like my friends and I are planning a trip and they're recommending a lot of the places we're going, but obviously I'm looking them up myself to confirm that recommendation and make sure that I it looks right to me. Yeah, absolutely. And you tend to look at the negative as well as the positive mm-hmm. side of those reviews that you find, right? And the same thing goes with the legal world. Now, again, think about that research process. It tends to lead to a single point, and this may be a shocker for some, but whether, again, it's a referral, I'm recalling an advertisement, like a billboard, radio, mailer, TV, whatever it may be, or I'm just organically searching for an attorney near me, chances are I'm going to get to your Google My Business page because I have to find your phone number if it's a referral. We don't remember phone numbers anymore. Mm -hmm. If it's a radio advertisement or whatever it may be, Again, I don't tend to remember phone numbers. I remember the name. I look for you. And in that moment, I'm going to see you and I'm going to see you stacked right next to your competition. So what does your star rating and what do the quantity of reviews and the content of your reviews say about your business? Hmm. All of you should have a Google My Business set up where you can have accurate business hours, a fair representation of the type of law that you practice. But do those reviews fairly reflect how good you are at practicing that emphasis? Again, with those testimonials, quantity of reviews tends to validate the message contained in those reviews. So if you only have 10 to 50 reviews and your competitor has several hundred, obviously there's some work to be done to help validate your brand through your reviews. Google will suggest alternatives. Uh, It's not going away, but you can certainly take advantage of your happy clients and leverage their experiences to help you get good reviews by helping them lead you a review in a simpler way. That's where we can help. Since we have a little bit of time, is there an amount of reviews that is enough? It's all based on your competitive market. So certainly, if you have, uh, again, you're in uh, San Antonio, for example, if you have 200 and your next nearest competitor has 30, you're in a good position to have your brand validated. If you only have 10 and the rest of the market has substantially more, certainly there's work to be done. So it's all about how you stack up relative to your competition. Hmm, Makes sense. There's a deeper level to this as well, Sam. When you think about that Google My Business page experience, we research, and assuming we like you, Google has told us, since they've financially backed Podium, that 40% of people won't click on directions, they won't click on calls, and they won't click on save this business. They'll click on websites. And when they get to your website, since we don't type in websites directly anymore, you have to be quick to connect with them because they likely have multiple tabs open with your next nearest competitors as well. Mm-hmm. At that moment, the name of the game is speed to lead. Traditional chats are tending to fade where people don't like to sit and chat with someone that says, hi, sir, are you still there, sir? <laughs> Can I help you, sir? Can you provide me more information, sir? Right? They want a quick and convenient experience. Providing a texting option is very popular because consumers can connect with you and go through the intake process on the go as they're at work, as they're bouncing between appointments, as they're visiting the doctor's office, they can text with their lawyer, attorney, case manager, whoever it may be throughout that process to get information in a convenient way for them. So through the discovery process, two big themes here. You want to drive confidence 
and convenience for your consumers. Confidence through reviews, having a large quantity with good content from your happy clients, and having a convenient way for them to connect with you via text message through your website, in some cases through Facebook Messenger, Instagram, other channels of communication as well. And ideally, you bring those all into a single inbox so you can respond to them all from one place. That's where we can help. If this resonates with you, visit podium.com slash lawyerist for a free demo of Podium and a free audit of your Google My Business page. Thanks, Joe. My name is Ed Walters. I'm the CEO of FastCase, and I teach the law of robots at the Georgetown University Law Center in the fall and at Cornell Law in the spring. That's right. We had a whole podcast about the law of robots, about kind of teeing up off that course. That was super fun. My 10-year-old always insists that I use the vibrato. You know, you have to say, the law of <laughs> robots. Either that or the or like the Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Wheels <laughs> <laughs> turn, engines burn. <laughs> well, and I guess that's kind of similar to what we're going to talk about today because robots are powered by data. But we're not going to be talking about legal robots. If you want to hear that, go listen to the other podcast. But so, first of all, congratulations. I think it's the 20-year anniversary of Fast Case, isn't it? Yeah, in November, we'll, we'll turn 20 years old, our, our little babies all grown up. Full disclosure, FastCase is and has been an advertiser and a sponsor and supporter of Lawyerist at various times, I guess. And you are sitting on a treasure trove of data, so you're biased towards data, I suppose we could say. Yes, I am. <laughs> but And you just put out a book, uh, The Data-Driven Law, which you co-sort of, well, how did that work? Did you edit it and then co-author it? How do we describe yeah. it? So uh, I'm the editor of the book. I really, I, I curated it. So I got to invite a bunch of friends to uh, write chapters in the book. And I got to write a chapter myself, which was great. And there's there's so many really cool things happening in this space, but like in a lot of different areas, maybe some in e-discovery and some in, you know, figuring out what the quality of legal services would be and, you know, creating a unique computer programming language to express law, you know, big data applications for law. And so it was kind of cool to ask friends who were working on cool projects to uh, make jazz together, you know, mm -hmm. to, to jam together yeah. in a book. And talk about all of these different ways that data is being expressed in the practice of law right now. And there's at least one other former podcast guest in there, David Colarusso. Did I miss another one? I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't think any of the rest of this group has, uh, <laughs> has ever been on the podcast. I've read parts of it. I've skimmed parts of it. Do you feel like this is written for a non-techie lawyer? That's the goal. So the goal is that you shouldn't really have to know any computer science or any you know data science or anything beyond simple math so it's a it's a non-technical guide but the idea is to stretch people a little bit to push them can it, permission to rant for a little bit yeah absolutely please do <laughs> so <laughs> you and i've had this conversation before i always get lawyers who say something like I am what you might call computer illiterate. Right. Or they'll say something like, you know, I went to law school, so I wouldn't have to deal with math. And I always think, you know, if you're a client and you hear that, it's got to really send you, right? <laughs> like if you had yeah. if you had a lawyer who said, like, you know, I, I, I'm not very good at using the telephone, mm -hmm. you know, or if you went to a doctor who said in a self-deprecating way, you know, I'm what you might call biology illiterate. <laughs> you know, you'd right. be like, give me another doctor. And I think people tend to mean it as funny and self-effacing, but it really is kind of insulting themselves and insulting to the person they say it to. We're not 
bad at math. I mean, every lawyer in America probably took the SAT mm-hmm. and they probably did well enough to get into a good college and get into law school. Right. You know, these are not people who fail for uh, logical reasoning. They had to take the logic games section of the LSAT. So these are people who are analytical and who are capable of math and science thinking and who continually sell themselves in the profession short. Well, and I, th- I guess I think I, I, it makes me crazy, too. Like, you know, the ethics rules are what they are. And they clearly say at this point that you need to be tech competent in order to be a lawyer. And that's just part of professional competence. But I also get that when you look at an Ed Walters or maybe a Sam Glover, and you think, well, you know how to write code and you know how to be paperless and mobile and, and you know how to build legal research websites. And it's easy to be dismissive of that because of the vast gulf in competence, in tech competence between the lawyer who is at the beginning of that tech competence journey and you or I. And I'm sensitive to that. And the answer is obviously like anything else, you know, you don't get to be a marathoner the first day you go for a run you have to take baby steps out the door and work your way up to it. And understanding it is just one thing. And I hope we can send people away with a better understanding today. Well, and the key thing you've touched on there is really curiosity. Mm -hmm. People have to be curious. They have to remain curious. And that is going to be the key to, you know, always being a great advocate for clients to be curious about what their problems are to be curious about better ways of solving those problems and not falling back on what we've always done in the way we've always done it. That curiosity is the key to all of this, to innovation, to data-driven law, to creating better law practices and better legal services. Well, that, that's why I wanted to talk about this with you, because like you have a very optimistic idea of what data can do for lawyers, and it's not take our jobs. And so maybe maybe I should just let you dive into it. Like, what is data, first of all, and why should lawyers care about it? So when I was in law school, there was this really nerdy conversation about empirical legal studies. Mm-hmm. But all that meant was studying what happens, right? Just looking at the past of what's happened in legal matters or in contracts or in transactions mm-hmm. as a way of understanding what might happen next. Empirical legal studies was just the study of legal history, really, more than anything else. Uh, In many circumstances, it was just counting things that we hadn't counted before. (laughs) And this is what what data-driven law is all about. So at FastCase, we obviously have a lot of lawyers who subscribe to the Legal Research Service, but we also are a company and we employ law firms. And whenever we have a new legal matter, I will ask law firms, why should we work with you? What makes your firm different? And there is never a satisfying answer to that question. Hmm. You know, we always get the same kind of pablum about highest standards of honesty and ethics when it matters most, and it's about the company and collegial. And, and now they may tag AI on the end of that. <laughs> right, dot AI. Because they use a product that has some AI in it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's always the same answer from every firm, right? Yeah. What I want to know is, from a data standpoint, what makes the firm different? Do you have better outcomes? Is your process better? Are we going to achieve a better outcome by working with this firm? So that's data. Or even just like what, what you tee up in the book, which is when you ask a question like, what do you think our chances of succeeding in this case are? You get something better than a hunch, right? Are you actually going to be able to answer <laughs> that question for me? No, that's exactly right. So clients bring lawyers the, the hardest questions of their lives. For family law matters, you've got custody questions and you know uh, marriage and divorce and trust and estates questions. In, in people law, you've got criminal law matters like should I take this plea deal or not. Mm-hmm. Corporations bring very important questions to their law firms. 
They want to know what kind of risk exposure do we have by taking this action? Is this going to be considered a violation of the antitrust laws? This contract, does it account for everything? Is it standard? Am I paying too much for this thing? What's market? And you know, every single client, whether it's people law or corporate law, has the same question, which is, how much is this going to cost? Mm-hmm. <laughs> how, what's, what kind of outcome are we going to have, right? So every one of those things I just said is a data question. Yeah. Right. The the answer to those questions should be expressed in data. And it doesn't have to be like nerdy. Right. I'm not saying you have to speak some foreign language. I'm saying the question, how much is this going to cost is a data question. It should be answered with a data answer. And every, every law firm has the data, right? They can look back through their records and say, we've handled X number of cases that look like this. And the range of costs is from this to this. And 50% of them fall here. You got it. That's exactly right. And so if the, the firm that could answer that question saying, here's the distribution of costs, here's what the bell curve looks like. By the way, there's a little bump at the end for some extraordinary cases. Right. Yours isn't like that. But so the mean is this, the median is that. There's all kinds of things that a law firm could do with that. You mm-hmm. could say, here's a fixed fee for it that is 25% more than the average. And if we are more efficient in handling it, we're going to have a 30 to 40% profit margin on this matter. You could say... I'm not going to guarantee what the cost is going to be, but I can tell you here is the median cost and the average cost with our firm compared to everybody else. And I'll, I'll just tell you straight up as a client, you know, whenever a law firm says that to me, they win our business. Right. But it's very, very <laughs> few law firms can do that. So, you know, it's it, this isn't about price. This is about risk. Yeah. If you don't know what your price is as a law firm, all of the risk is on the client. And the data that can go into that is stuff like how have courts decided in this jurisdiction before? What other jurisdictions are an option? How have they decided? All, all kinds of data that you can plug into the equation to give your clients better and better information about risk, right? Totally, totally. So if you're a litigator, the first decision you make is where to file suit. Mm-hmm. And filing in one jurisdiction versus another jurisdiction affects the entire course of the litigation. Your chances of settlement, your chances of winning, your chances of, you know, succeeding on a motion for summary judgment, like every one of those outcomes is predetermined by where you file. But lawyers don't really have any good quality information about where to file, you know. So these are all in in different ways uh, data questions. And we as lawyers tend to answer those questions with anecdotes. Well, yeah, that I mean, that that was one of the things that struck me most about how you have talked about this problem in the past and in the book is, you know, we call it our professional judgment, but it's really more of a hunch. And we can't really explain how we've made that decision in any detail to our clients. Right. That's right. And, you know, it's no surprise that clients get frustrated by this. Mm-hmm. And people... Yeah, I think lawyers view this as a price problem. We say legal services are too expensive and therefore we only reach 20% of people uh, who have a legal problem, according to the you know ABA, the American Bar Foundation survey, mm-hmm. uh, because legal services are expensive and people can't afford it. But I don't think that's the problem. I think the problem is that uh, it's a matter of risk. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if, uh, if when I ask how much is this going to cost, the answer is it's going to cost... times the number of hours it takes 
with no maximum. <laughs> right. That's not an <laughs> it's answer. It's very hard for me to buy that service. <laughs> right. I, I suppose that makes me think like part of the thing that's going on there is clients are out there assessing risk on their own with no data as well. That's right. And so as a, as a result, you see things like uh, corporate clients bringing matters in-house. Like in 2016, corporate clients brought $4 billion with a B dollars worth of legal matters that they used to handle with outside counsel in-house. Right. You have people who decide... They're going to go it alone. Consumers are bringing it in-house, too. They're, they're doing it themselves. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, or they're going to uh, work with a legal services provider that can give them a fixed fee. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll go work with a forms service or, you know, with a service that knows what those costs are, uh, like LegalZoom. That is one of the big advantages they have. You always know what it's going to cost. You've heard me say this before, but like, you know, imagine you go to a restaurant where on the menu you see lobster and it says market price and you ask the server what the market price for lobster tonight. Mm-hmm. The server says it depends. <laughs> you know, it depends on the temperature of the water we pulled it out of. It depends on the fuel costs to get it here. It depends on the spot price of natural gas when we cook it. It depends on whether we have the master chef or this brand new sous chef prepare it in the back. If you want to save a little money, maybe we could have the dishwasher do it, you know, but don't worry, you'll get the final price when, when I bring you the bill at the end of the meal. So nobody's going to order lobster right. if that's how lobster is priced on the menu. Uh, it's not a matter of cost. It's a matter of risk. And if your restaurant had all of the prices on the menu as market price uh, in this way, nobody would ever go to the restaurant if they had an alternative. Right. You know, and if they don't have if, if all restaurants charge this way, people would just cook for themselves. They would always eat at home. And, you know, people say, like, that's kind of a facetious example. But restaurants have variable costs. Mm-hmm. They have all of the labor costs and fuel costs and variable costs. And they just price that into what is on the menu, right? And there's no reason that lawyers couldn't do that with the benefit of data. If we knew what we bill, if we knew what we cost, if we tracked the time and cost of different matters, if we had ways of auditing that data from outside sources, then we would be able to price all of these matters in a way that would make it more easier for clients to buy and would expand the pool of people who would consume legal services to be much bigger. Well, and every once in a while, the price of avocados goes up and then the restaurant raises its prices because there's a bigger change than they anticipated. Yeah. It just happens. (laughs) That's right. And they know. And so what they do is they just say, look, we know that the spot price of bananas or avocados or, you know, lobster (laughs) is going to go up and down. But we also know how high it gets and how low it gets and yep. what seasons it goes high or low. And so we will put that into the price and just keep it consistent on the menu in a way that we always make money. Or even, you know, if we lose money in one season, right. we'll make it more of it in the next. I mean, I, I think that what you have in mind is sort of like what Natalie Worsfold built, who was on the podcast recently, where her firm wanted to have those better conversations about risk with their clients. So they went and they built a tool that helps them show their clients what variables and assumptions they're adding into the equation, um, adjusting those factors, and then giving an actual answer like, A, here's what we think, but B, here's how we arrived at that number or that range. 
And here are the different levers that we can pull and, and it empowers their clients to make different decisions. Like, you know, maybe we don't want to push so hard on this issue because if we pull this issue out of the equation, our exposure goes way down at an acceptable risk. And then a couple of weeks later, I was having lunch with a friend of mine who is a general counsel at a major corporation who doesn't happen to practice in Canada. <laughs> and she was like, God, I wish I could work with that firm. I wish we had business there because I'd love to be having those kinds of conversations with my outside counsel. It could be the case that legal services are fundamentally uh, in their DNA different from accounting services or tax services or medical services or every other kind of service in the whole imaginable universe. <laughs> but it seems unlikely. But it's more likely the case <laughs> that legal services are just like all of the rest of those. And, you know... To, to kind of put a bow on this, you had sort of said at the top, you're optimistic about this, Ed. You don't worry about, um, you know, these kind of data services replacing <laughs> the judgment of lawyers. I am optimistic about it. We're serving 20% of the population. The size of that market is $437 billion with a B dollars for 20%. Mm -hmm. If we could expand that to reach 50%. I mean, that's a pretty modest goal, right? Yeah. We could potentially even double the size of the legal services market in the United States. There wouldn't be enough people to do all of the work if we could reach people who needed legal help and do it in a way that allocates risk in a way that's client focused. Yeah. So I'm, again, I'm not saying that we need to make everything fixed price, although I think that would make a big difference. What I am saying is that we are failing to reach people because we don't allocate risk correctly. We're unable to take some of the risk for pricing legal services because we don't know what things cost. That is not an impossible problem to solve. It feels like lawyers are still solving rudimentary problems over and over and over again because we aren't taking the opportunity to, which, which we now have, we now have this opportunity to collect data and use it to make better decisions and build a foundation of questions we no longer have to keep asking because we can just get the answer. And, and then we can do more interesting things. We can have more interesting relationships with our clients. We can scale. We can be more efficient. We can offer a variety of services that we're just not currently answering because sometimes people look at that access to justice gap as, okay, 80% of the need is going unmet. So that means 20% of the need is being met by 100% of the lawyers in the country. But we're not going to get four times more lawyers to enter the profession anytime soon. So the answer can't be more lawyers. The answer has to be changing the way we do it and, and enabling lawyers to serve more people at more better costs. And it sounds like building data into this as a way to start answering questions and building a foundation where we can be more efficient has got to be the way to do it. Yeah. There's a, there's a great story about this. Uh, remind me at the end of the podcast and I'll, I'll share a story about kind of changing legal services for the better for the practice. Will do. I'll come back to that at the end. Well, right now we're going to take a break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we're going to get a little bit pessimistic and talk about what are some of the bad ways to use data or some of the problems or pointless ways to use data. So we'll be right back. With Text Expander, you can use gathered snippets of information as you type using a keyboard shortcut or custom abbreviations. Don't waste time typing out things you've already worded perfectly. Capture the important pieces of your emails, directions, messages, and data so you never have to retype them again. From correcting your personal typos and defining industry terms to whole email templates, reusing your info has never been faster and it works everywhere you type. Text Expander is available for Mac, Windows, iPhone, and iPad, and Lawyerist Podcast listeners can get 20% off their first year by visiting visiting textexpander.com slash podcast. So visit textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more about Text Expander and claim your discount. 
How cool would it be to grow your practice in your chosen area of law without spending time or money on business development? Now you can with ARAG. ARAG is a leader in legal insurance, and it works a lot like medical insurance. When you become a provider on the ARAG network, you consult with and represent clients for various legal issues, from writing a will to dealing with bankruptcy or divorce. ARAG does the rest, seriously. They'll connect you with new clients, they'll pay you directly, they'll even collect client feedback and share it with you so you can keep growing your business. Visit araglegal.com slash lawyerist, that's A-R-A-G legal.com slash lawyerist, to join the network for no fee and start growing your practice. And it is all about the growth. In fact, more than 90% of ARAG members say they are more likely to consult with an attorney when something goes up than if they didn't have legal insurance. Check it out at araglegal.com slash lawyerist. That's A-R-A-G legal.com slash lawyerist. Support for today's episode comes from Ruby Receptionists, helping legal professionals like you deliver legendary service and grow your practice with live receptionist and chat services. At a fraction of the cost of a full-time hire, Ruby's live U.S.-based team greets your clients personally when they call or visit your website. Ruby can route calls to you or connect chats to call based on your customized directions. Your live receptionist can collect new client intake, answer frequently asked questions, and make follow-up calls. Ruby streamlines billing with call tracking and Clio Rocket Matter and Clio Grow integrations. Ruby can send messages to you via the mobile app, email, or text, and much more, helping you grow your firm. Thousands of solo and small firm attorneys across the country rely on Ruby to turn callers and website visitors into clients. And now you can try Ruby for free. Call 844-715-7829 today or visit callruby.com slash lawyeristpodcast to get started with your 14-day free trial. That's 844-715-7829 or callruby.com slash lawyeristpodcast. Okay, we're back. So Ed, we've talked about the potential in data for lawyers to build better practices or to better address the latent legal market represented by that access to justice gap. It strikes me that there are also some problems. Like if you're always backward looking to make your decisions, do you end up just reinforcing the status quo? And could that be problematic? Like what are some smarter ways to make sure that our data remains smart? Yeah. So the I think one big problem there is algorithmic bias. So you'll, you'll have all kinds of bias, biases in data, and you have to be careful that you are not amplifying or creating a feedback loop with those biases. So you see this with like an algorithmic bail setting, for example, where courts say we're going to remove race considerations from the setting of bail. We're going to use software that evaluates the recidivism or flight risk of every individual defendant without regard to race. Mm-hmm. But what they do is they kind of retrofit those questions into data. And a lot of times what they end up doing is saying, okay, we're not going to look at race. We're going to look at your zip code, <laughs> you know, right. or we're going to look at uh, where your address is or something like that. That ends up, you know, having a much more kind of racist uh, bias than you would if you were just considering the person as an individual. Because there's so much history of like kind of race in the, the past data. And I would say that one one big consideration here is when I talk about data-driven law, I never talk about you know uh, data lawyering, like the data itself is going to make the decisions. Right. I always say we should make independent judgments as lawyers and as clients 
in the presence of data, right? We should have access to this kind of empirical history as we make decisions going forward. Yeah, and I really like one of your books, or one of your lines from the book, where you say, on balance, clients would rather have the considered judgment of an experienced lawyer informed by the most relevant information required to answer the question, right? Not just the first half of that. Um, It's great to have an experienced lawyer, but an experienced lawyer armed with data is way better than one, and data on its own doesn't really answer questions. You have to have somebody to help form the question and interpret the answer. Man, did I say that? That's exactly right. (laughs) You totally did. (laughs) Isn't that great when you like hear what you said and you're like, yes. (laughs) Yeah, you just quoted me to me. That's great. Yeah, so in chess, it's often said, but it's, it's totally true that the you know algorithms can beat people at chess but people with the algorithms can beat either people right. or algorithms they're always better so you have these kind of human machine interfaces that work together and they are they are, they produce the best strategy and the best thinking about chess and so i think the same thing is true of lawyering if you if you had the choice you would probably always want a better lawyer than a lesser lawyer but mm-hmm. a better lawyer armed with data is always going to be the best option i think the chess analogy is a good one right like would you rather play gary kasparov in chess or ibm's deep blue in chess or gary kasparov who before every move deep blue tells gary kasparov what it thinks he ought to do and why he's why the algorithm says that he ought to do that so that Gary Kasparov can overrule the machine in the few times when it's wrong. Like, that's intimidating as hell. It was Gary <laughs> Kasparov who came up with this insight, right. actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they, they call these, uh, you know, the man-machine partnership centaurs, basically. Mm. But uh, centaurs are better at chess than people or machines. And it's I think the same thing is true of lawyering. If you are armed with good data about your matters. And I I like to match this up. I like to combine like sort of public data and then the data from a law firm to, you know, really come up with the the kind of deep expertise in a particular subject combined with a general amount of data uh, from the background. So as an example of this um, at FastCase, let's call it a R&D experiment, but it was really kind of a shits and giggles thing. We downloaded all the metadata from Pacer from like the year 2012. Hmm. So, you know, 750,000 cases, right. just trying to see what happens. And it was so beautiful. We ended up downloading like all of the metadata from Pacer from like 2011 to 2017. Uh, we're working on 2018 right now. It's amazing. Yeah. You know, you can see like who files what, what's the seasonality of litigation against Microsoft, what uh, clients never, ever settle. For sure. You know, what's the, are there more or fewer bankruptcies filed in 2017 versus 2016? And then if you, if you're a specialist at something, right, if you do employment agreements or something, you could look in your database and get a deep dive into that specific area and benchmark it against other firms or check the seasonality of litigation against your clients versus everyone else in their industry. How much volume does it take for data to be useful? Because I remember you saying something about big data versus small data in your article. And I think that we often, we have this idea about big data that that everybody always talks about. But a lot of the listeners to this podcast are going to be at quite small firms and are probably wondering like, I don't really have data. I have cases, most of which I can name the and describe the <laughs> the issues and I can name the parties and I still have a lot of that <laughs> right. in my head. So like, is that really data Do or do can I do anything useful with that or 
Or really, if I can remember most of my cases, why isn't my professional judgment good enough? Well, the best source of this data right now in the market is not Thomson Reuters. It's Clio. Mm -hmm. The Clio Legal Trends Report is maybe the best source of legal data in the market right now. It's amazing. And that is not from large firms. That is from small firms. So I always say, you know, this is not like a data scientist problem. This isn't every lawyer problem. We have the ability to go back and look at what we've built in the past for different kinds of matters. And I think lawyers have a, a kind of a conjectural way of doing this. If you're a personal injury lawyer, before you take a case, you're doing a gut check to see what your chances of settling or winning the case are going to be. You do a gut check about whether you can afford to cash flow the experts and the cost of putting on that case. Wouldn't it be better if you logged it or yeah. went back and looked at it and just said, hey, every time we bring a slip and fall, it costs us $40,000 in expert witness costs. So we need to have you know, a better than 50% chance of winning more than $80,000 or $100,000 in this case to make it worth our while to bring. And, you know, again, I, how many data points do you need? Two? <laughs> <laughs> well, and I suppose an interesting exercise, too, that I've heard some lawyers doing is, you know, at, at each point where you do a gut check like that, you write down your your hypothesis, just like if it were a science experiment, right? You know, I'm worried that this is not going to settle early, so I think it's going to be this, or I, I think the cash flow requirements on this case are going to be this, and here's what I'm basing that on. And then at the end of the case, you you go back and check all that stuff and see how you did, and reflecting on that can help you make better decisions, and then you track your guesses and the results over time and figure out if you're making better decisions over time, and you're sort of creating data as well that can help you improve very directly. I also think it's, it's going to be a competitive advantage. Advantage. Mm -hmm. When law firms say we keep track of how long these things take and how much they cost, mm -hmm. when they go pitch their business, they can then say, look, we collect data on this and here's what we know. And, you know, again, if you have law firms who have that expertise, even with relatively small data sets, they are going to, on average, do better than lawyers who don't have it. And so I, I always tell people just start tracking right away. You know, and track the things that your clients care about, the kind of questions they have. When do you win or lose? How much does it cost? How long does it take? What are the contingencies? What kinds of things make it cost more or cost less? So it doesn't have to be a DLA Piper scale firm to track these things. I actually think small firms might even be able to track it better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because at a pretty small scale, just tracking it on a spreadsheet or on a notepad is actually realistic. Yeah, I think that's right. And if you're if you're looking at maybe, you know, 50, 60 matters, that is not a giant lift right. to collect. You know, whereas if you're a you know global litigation firm, that could be a you know a data exercise. You might have to use like AI or something to start extracting that data from all of your files. Again, not a not a unsolvable problem. These things aren't unknowable. They just, for the most part, are unknown. Yeah. Um, you said you wanted to tell a story. Yeah. So Billy Tarasio, who I actually met uh, at TBD Law yeah. by Lawyerist, <laughs> tells this great story. Uh, and I think she actually told this story at TBD Law. She said she's a family lawyer in Arizona uh, and a very progressive, forward-thinking lawyer. And she found herself filing the same 30 family law forms over and over again. Mm -hmm. uh, the same you know, custody disputes, the same TROs and things like that in court. And she was miserable. And she said, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put the forms, I'm going to automate them. I'm going to make them fillable. I'm going to put them on my website with instructions on how to fill them out. 
And I'm not sure what I'm going to do for a living the week after that, <laughs> once I've automated most of what I do as a lawyer, but I'll figure it out and I'm not going to keep doing this. Yeah. And so she did it. She automated the forms. She put them on our website with instructions on how to fill them out. Uh, and then her phone started ringing <laughs> and it was clients and a lot of new clients who were saying, hey, uh, now it's time to meet. Yeah. And she said, no, 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 I, there's no meeting. Just take the form and submit it. <laughs> and the client said, no, that's, I mean, yes, of course, but I want to meet. What I want is validation. Mm-hmm. I want someone to say, your problems are my problems. I want someone to stand shoulder to shoulder with me and say, I've seen worse. Mm-hmm. Or here's what's going to happen next. So Billy thought that her law firm's product was documents and hours. And it turned out the real product that her law firm was delivering was a sense of security, a sense of shared risk, a sense that you didn't have to face things alone anymore, that you were stronger together working with a legal professional. And she said, you know, it really humanized her practice. It took the robotic data entry parts of her practice out and replaced it with a much more human, connected, meaningful, top of your degree practice of law transformative for her. And so I say, you know, let us give to the robots the most robotic parts of the practice of law (laughs) and reclaim the parts that are the most human. And I'm very optimistic about this. I I really do think that if we are able to expand the definition of legal services, if we're able to tell people proactively based on what's happened in the past, here's what I think is going to happen in the future and here's a way to manage it. We can not only expand the definition of legal services, we can expand the pool of people who are qualified for it. I don't think that this kind of automation is going to replace lawyers. It's going to replace the worst of lawyers' work, (laughs) just in the same way eDiscovery did. So if we can expand the pool of people who can qualify for legal services and make those services much more meaningful to the lawyers and allied professionals who provide it, then that's a win for everybody. There's a popular line in business books that is um, along the lines of what gets tracked gets improved. And if you're trying to figure out what your client's risk is, then the best way to improve your judgment on that and to reduce their risk is to start tracking it and looking for opportunities to improve it. And the same goes for your law firm. One of the stats that you mentioned in your article was that something like 94% of law firms don't even know how much it costs them to acquire a client, which I think is amazing, especially given how much emphasis we place on legal marketing. But apparently it's just sort of (laughs) spewing marketing out in every direction and not really understanding what it's doing for you. And it's not even, you know, that's one of those things where getting started tracking that is, is not a difficult exercise Um, And maybe that's one of the pieces that lawyers could start with. But I think the place to start, it sounds to me from listening to you that the place to start is to kind of identify some better answers that you'd like to be able to give, you know, for your clients around how much is this going to cost in the end, for yourself around how much is it going to cost you to, to bring a case, how much does it cost you to get a client in the door, and maybe even how satisfied are your clients after the fact. And then once you start tracking that data over time, you'll probably identify new questions and you'll want to gather new data and, and start moving on from there. But something simple like how much it costs you to acquire clients seems like a really good place to start. Yeah. Or, you know, I, I hear businesses and occasionally law firms saying that the way that they become most profitable and most fulfilled is periodically they'll just fire their worst client. <laughs> yep. <laughs> How would you know who to fire? Yeah. 
That's a good point. The only way really to know that would be looking at what's most profitable for you, what is consuming way more of your staff's time than is financially worth it. And then you know, you, you can use those kinds of data to make the business of your law firm work much better, to be more competitive, to make more money, to have more hours in the day. Now, we're going to put a link to Data Driven Law in the show notes, obviously, and it's a great collection of work around what data can mean for law. And I think you said that the book is quite pricey. So I'm wondering if you have any backup recommendations for people who want to dip their toes in the water of understanding what data can do for law. Sure. Well, so first of all, I would say that the the book is uh, being discounted down. It was originally like a hundred dollars. Now it's like seventy five dollars. Okay. As an investment for a law firm, you know that's probably not uh, totally out of whack. Right. Uh, the ebook is even less expensive, so it's usually around fifty dollars. So I would say that that is a pretty you know affordable way to invest in your practice. Absolutely. Outside of that, I really like a couple of blogs out there. So like Bill Henderson, who wrote uh, chapter 10 in the book, has a great blog uh, called Legal Evolution, mm-hmm. uh, which I highly recommend. It's it's a very, very good. I think uh, Mark Cohen, who writes for Forbes and uh, has his own blog, has a, a lot really useful to say about this Um Dan Rodriguez, formerly the dean of Northwestern, and now I think uh, vacillating between Stanford and Harvard hmm. in some capacity, also has some some really good reflections on the kind of changing nature of legal services in a more competitive market. And last, I would just recommend Bill Henderson's report to the State Bar of California, who is really contemplating the future of legal services uh, and maybe liberalizing the rules in a, in a way that is expanding the kind of clients who can partake in legal services. Bill Henderson's report to the State Bar of California is a fantastic read, really amazing. Very cool. Thanks for that. We'll throw those links in the show notes as well. So, Ed, thanks so much for talking about data with me, as always. It's been great to have you back on the podcast. Sam, it's a blast. Thanks for having me on. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced with help from Lindsay Calhoun and edited by Paul Fisher. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. Ooh.